Okay, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, beginning in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for, the, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I, have made, that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offerings for sin. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And I pray he writes this truth on your heart today. I uh, have many hats that I wear. One of the hats that I wear is not only a pastor of this church, but sometimes I end up being like a chaplain for my dad's uh, company, Relight Construction, and I have to occasionally help him with different things. There was a, a very good mason, very humble man uh, named Keith, and Keith worked for my dad, and his wife had been in a battle with brain cancer for a year, and she lost that battle about two weeks ago. And so I went over to help him kind of minister, help find him great plots, and and just sort of try to be there and help him. He said he may visit here one Sunday morning. If he does, you all greet him. He's a very humble guy, really great guy to be around. But he, we have a box truck. Some of you have seen it here. We use it for different ministry things. And so I kind of keep it here a lot because we end up using it for different things. And um, he came over to get the box truck and use it. He, he couldn't stay where his wife had lived with him. He wanted to move to another location. It was just too much for him. So he got the box truck and drove it over there. And Friday night, that a ball game for my daughter, and I get a call from Keith. said, Travis, I, I cannot get this truck to start. Now, this truck, it's a 99 former box truck, former U-Haul box truck. It's a little cantankerous at times. It's temperamental. So sometimes it likes the way you put the key in, and sometimes it doesn't, right? It just depends on what kind of mood it's in. So I told him, I said, well, stomp the brake, move the steering wheel, flip the key over, give that a whirl. He did all that. Still can't get it started. I said, well, just keep trying that until it starts. Well, he tries and tries, can't get it going. Next day, Adeline Windsor game, going back to the game next morning, get another call from Keith. Hey, Travis, listen, I got this box truck loaded up, and I still cannot get this box truck to start. I have turned the key and turned, I cannot get it to turn over. I've tried to turn the key and turn it. My fingers are numb from the amount of times I've tried to turn this key in this truck. I don't know what else to do. I'm going to go rent a U-Haul. I was like, well, I can't come help you right now. I'll come after I'm done with the ball game. So, Adeline wins her first ball game. Scores the first points. I'm very proud dad afterwards. Great time. Get my tools. Watch a couple YouTube videos because that's how we fix stuff now, right? We watch a YouTube video and then we see, I think I can handle that. Get my tools up. Go down there. And uh, I arrived there in Sulphur Springs where the truck is and said, hey, just give me the key. I'll see if I can get it started. He hands me the key and I said, Keith, this is, this is the wrong key. He said, you're kidding me. I said, no. I said, the key to this truck is on an Apple key ring. It's got a little Apple that dangles off of it, and it's an all-metal key. I said, this is a key that has no apple attached to it, and it's part plastic. I said, this is the wrong key. Uh, and so, needless to say, we drove over to his new place. Guess what was sitting on the counter? Key to the box truck. Drove back, stuck it in the ignition. Guess what happened? Started right up. So, <clears throat> you know, I say all that to say this. 
uh, what, what a tragedy would have been. How costly would it have been? You know, things don't always go the way we plan them, do they? Right? Sometimes we, we try as we may, and it's like we try and we try and we try, and things just don't go according to plan. You know, he was going to have to unload that truck and load it back onto this other U-Haul. I mean, how much more effort was that going to be? The, the money it was going to cost him, the extra time it was going to cost him, and it did cost him. And, you know, sometimes we're that way with our life spiritually. We have put a lot of effort into loading the box truck. You know, we put church attendance on there. We put tithing and giving on there. We have put all these different things on there. And all the while thinking, we've got the key. It's going to get this thing rolling and get it where it needs to go. Stick it in the ignition, and it was actually the wrong key. How sad would that be if you get to eternity before Christ and you realize this whole time I've had or been trying to use the wrong key spiritually? Well, in the text today, this is kind of what the author is, is telling us about. He, he is talking to not atheists here, not agnostics here. He's not addressing Richard Dawkins or people like that. He's talking to those who were of Jewish descent and practiced Judaism, and he is talking to them about what it means to be a believer now. Now, they're tempted to not trust in the completed work of Christ, but they are tempted to trust in what their own religious efforts and you know abilities could render right. Uh, so they want to do Christ plus this, you know. And and if you stop and think about this, it's easy for us to sit where we sit in history and say, "Oh, silly Jews that became Christians. This is the way of salvation." But let me make clear why this was so confusing, so you can better understand for them. Here's the reality of it: God gave Judaism, didn't He? Didn't God fashion the Old Testament and give them the the rituals that they should do? Didn't God give them uh, the right religion? They were the only nation that had the right religion that God gave to them. They had the right view of God. They saw God as sovereign and holy above all other gods in the world. And they approached Him. They had the right guy, the priest, to offer the offerings there, approaching God on His terms, not on theirs. They had a right understanding of sin. I'm going to talk to you more about that in a little bit, the two different words that are used in the New Testament for sin. And they, they had a right understanding of what it took to atone for sin or what to get it right. They understood it took a sacrifice to fix the brokenness of the sin that created the distance between them and God. So with that in mind, let's kind of look at this together. First of all, verse 11, and every priest stands. Every priest stands. Right now this morning, I'm standing in front of you preaching. This is my second round. I've already preached in the other service at 9 o'clock. I don't know. I had a colleague tell me this once, another pastor in the ministry. He said preaching a sermon is the equivalence of eight hours of work. I don't know if that's actually true or not. I do know that when I'm done preaching, man, I'm tired, right? Uh, you know, I stand back, I shake hands, and, and I do that at the end of both services. And, and if I end up doing Sunday school or preaching on Sunday night, it is, it is very taxing on me. And usually by the time, you know, 7.38, o'clock rolls around, I'm ready for two things. And those two items include stretchy pants and a lazy boy, right? I am ready to sit down and be done for the day, right? Uh, in a similar fashion here, the priest standing in verse 11 signifies something important. It tells us here they are working, offering offerings daily. Those of you who discuss the sermon, after church on Sunday morning, let me encourage you to, uh, or even for your own private devotion, go back and look today at Numbers 28, Numbers chapter 28. In Numbers chapter 28, 
you will see a detailed list of all the different offerings that the Jews were required to give. They had weekly offerings that they were required to give. They had monthly offerings they were required to give. They had yearly offerings they were required to give. They had special festival offerings that they were required to give. So I want you to think about that. At each one of these offerings, there is animals that are being offered up. So the priests are coming in. Okay, this is uh, Michael's family, what he's bringing here. You take this, offer this offering, take care of that, put it on the fire burn offering. Next, I'm going to take Richard Marianne's offering. Okay, take care of that. Next, and then the, the line just kept going. So you can see the task of a priest was taxing. This is why part of the reason I think a lot of them, you know, you sort of aged out of the priesthood at what, around age 50 or so? You were not allowed to keep doing it because it was constant work and it is constantly uh, doing that work. Now, he's going to contrast in verse 11, the priest standing there taking these offerings and then the reality that the blood of bulls and goats and all these different ones he outlined and gave can't truly take away sin to Christ's work as a priest. Look here, verse 11 to 12. But when Christ had offered for one time a single offering of sins, he sat down. That's, that's very important that we understand. Christ took a seat after he offered that offering. What that means is there is no more need, right? You know, the priests that would do their offerings every day, in the temple, taking those lambs, goats, bulls, doves, flour, wine, all these different sort of offerings that are being brought in, putting them on the altar, and it's never finished. But Christ offering himself, his blood, his body, as an atonement for the sin here, it is accepted and complete, and there is no need now to give any kind of an offering in the Old Testament manner and fashion. You see, the atonement of Christ, Christ's blood, is the only thing that would satisfy and appease the wrath of God. And so coming here in the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, God was never fully pleased with the blood of bulls and the bloods of goats. It was not like the blood of His own Son. And so the fact that He sits down, we, get, we learn two important things. One, the final complete sacrifice of sin is given is one thing that we learn. And two, we see that he is seen, since he is seated with God, he is seen as God himself reigning and supreme. Those are the two things that we see. So the fact that Christ sits down after the offering is given at the right hand of God is very theologically significant. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. I don't know if I got into this in the first service. I don't think I did as much. Um, you know, I, I'm going to make this kind of a point. It was well known in Middle Eastern uh, culture that when you defeated an enemy, it was, it was often the practice that you would stand on the neck uh, or put your foot on the neck of your enemy to show complete another defeat of that enemy. In a similar fashion here, the enemies of Christ being rendered as a footstool under His feet show a final and complete victory over all enemies that are there. We live, though, in a time that is considered an already not yet, right? Um, in this regard, we can say at the cross of Jesus Christ, He died for sins, offering the final offering once for all mankind, for all people, for all sin. But He has not yet made all of His enemies a footstool. We live in this time 
in between. Already and not yet. This is important that it's framed this way in this verse because it's directly dependent on what happens in the next verse. Look down at 14. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time. You know what I like about this verse? I like the fact that when I'm talking to my wife, Becky, I can say to her, Honey, I just want you to know, biblically speaking, I am perfect. So that's what it says, right? So like when Christ died, we were perfected, right? But now remember, it doesn't. The, if the verse ended right there, that would be a true statement, totally. But what does it say? He goes on to say, though. So it says he perfected, sort of in a past tense. But you go on in fourteen, and what's it say? For all time, those who are being sanctified. So there's actually a past, and then there's a present. It goes back to that already, not yet, right? So, so I want you to think about this. As far as status goes, when, when God the Father looks at you, if you have repented of your sins and trusted Christ, He sees someone who is perfected, right? But you have not yet attained perfection in morality and in making mistakes, right? Everyone here makes mistakes and they make kind of moral blunders. You know, in... Uh, in the coming chapters, we're going to see illustrations of those who are considered like very faithful. I think uh, Abraham is considered courageous in the faith in Hebrews. And when we look back at the life of Abraham, we see something very important. We see the fact that uh, we look at him and say, you know what? Pretending that his wife is his sister so that the king doesn't kill him and take her for a bride for himself. That doesn't seem very faithfully courageous. That seems like a cowardly move. But you've got to remember, God views them through that lens of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So He views what they have done in the sense of being perfect. In a similar fashion here, we are called to remember this. Uh, you know, being sanctified, as He says here in these verses, that's just a fancy way to say what? Becoming more like Christ. So here, here is the message boiled down in verse 14. Really, it's the message of a lot of the New Testament, a lot of Paul's writings. You have already been perfected in Christ. Christ's atonement and sacrifice has made you perfect in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you're not yet perfected on this side of glory, but you need to strive to be what you already are. You see what I'm saying? So the call is to be what you are. Be, perfect, be perfected in Christ. Strive for it. Strive for holiness. Strive for joyfulness in this great sacrifice that has been given to us. Uh, moves on here and says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness for this. He's going to shift gears here, and he's actually quoted in several sections here, different Psalms. Here he's going to turn our attention to Jeremiah 31, and Christ and his offering being the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. He said, this is the covenant that will make with them after those days. So God is making here a new covenant with a new People, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You know, I, I just want to pump the brakes real quick and make sure we all understand something. What is sin? Because this is really where a lot of things come to roost. You know, sin is going to be any kind of violation or uh, offense to the holiness of God. It can be boiled down to simply this. Uh, it can be boiled down to the Ten Commandments, any violation of the Ten Commandments. 
You know, in the Old Testament, they had a lot of laws that they kind of built around the Ten Commandments to try to keep you from being an offense to the holiness of God. But in the New Testament, there are two different words that are used to describe sin, okay? Uh, in this particular passage, in the verse I just read, the Greek word is harmatia. Harmatia was actually a archery term. It was used by archers, and it was used to describe missing the mark. So in archery terms, so one of the things that we see is, and this is why harmatia would have been selected for this text to, to Jews that are trying so hard to keep the law, right? They're trying with the best efforts that they can. When they release the bow, they miss their target. Either they miss it by an inch or they miss it by a mile, but they miss the target. In a similar fashion here, there are sins in our lives that we commit where we are really striving and trying to be what we're called to be and we still miss the mark. Um, it kind of reminds me, harmatia in this term, uh, you know, I have a little bit of a different sense of humor than some people. That's my spiritual gift, right? There are these posters called demotivation posters. Have you ever seen them? They're hilarious. Like I used to have a calendar of them. They're the ones like, you've seen the motivation posters that say like leadership, you know, uh, and you know, it's like eagle flying. I don't know. Maybe they motivate you. I, I've always thought they were silly. You know what I mean? So I think the demotivation posters are priceless. And <clears throat> there is a poster, and it is a poster of an archer's target, and there is an arrow just barely on the bottom, and it's being split by another arrow. Okay, so can you see this in your mind? And the demotivation poster says, consistency. It's only a virtue if you're not a screw-up. <laughs> and I've always thought that was hilarious, you know. And, and that's a picture here, right? That's one of the things the author is pointing out here, right? You, you can almost think in our lives that we strive and we try. It's like that demotivation poster. The arrows just keep missing the mark, keep missing the mark, splitting arrow after arrow. Now, there's another word that's used for sin, and it describes a little bit different. The other word that's used for sin basically means to have knowledge or know the law and then to do the opposite, willfully doing the opposite. So every parent in this room that's ever had a child, right, uh, you know exactly what this word for sin is, right? You have seen it in your children where you have given them instruction and say, okay, you know, don't touch the button. They touch it anyway, right? Or you could almost sometimes use reverse psychology in that rebellious state. And the funny thing is about having children is you didn't have to teach them to sin this way, right? Like they came out of the womb knowing how to do these things, right? I didn't have to like give my son or daughters or my, my, my sons or my daughter a lecture on how to lie. They already knew how to do that before, <laughs> before I ever caught them in their first one, right? There, there is a, and they're no different than we are, right? We came out of the womb the same way. We knew how to do those things on our own. We knew how to hear instruction, pretend like we got it, and then run off and do the opposite. So that's the two type of terms that are used here. In this one, it's harmatia, but whether it's harmatia, whether it's the other term that's used for sin, at the end of the day, here, here's the reality that God calls us to, these three beautiful verses. Now I want to see if I can summarize this up for you, how God deals with them here. What does He say here? In those days, I'll put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. You know, it's not going to be this external thing. <clears throat> the law of God, the conviction that's brought in, becomes internal. You have internal correction that's brought to you. You know, I, it's funny to me when church folks get so mad at lost, uh, those who are lost and far from God because they love sin. The Bible tells us, though, that if we're without Christ, 
We're a slave to sin. You know, you shouldn't be surprised that lost people love their sin. The Bible even tells us that sin has a season, doesn't it? That it has a season and it's joyful. Why do you think Christians sometimes act like lost people? There is a joy to it, and they relish in it. We look at it, it's like a dog wallowing in trash to a lot of Christians. We say, we can't understand why they would enjoy something like that. Don't understand why a dog would rub itself in trash like that or why it would eat vomit or its own fecal matter, but it does, right? That's what it looks like to us. But here's the reality. For those that are believers, if you have the law of God written on your heart, you've accepted Christ. You may take a short season of joy from sin in your life, but you're going to be miserable in the long run because you have an internal witness. The Holy Spirit is in your life drawing about conviction, reminding you what the Word of God says, reminding you what He's told you here. So it, one of the things we're seeing here, this sacrifice here becomes internal. Uh, another thing here, uh, he adds, I will remember their sins and their, their lawless deeds no more. You know, in, in pastoral ministry, I've done a lot of counseling through the years. And I want to tell you a quick story of a couple that this is a true story. This happened in another state, another church. A couple came in. He had been having an affair on his spouse for 12 years. She didn't know it, and it all came out. He'd been going for 12 years. And, you know, he made the pleas, if you'll just keep me, I'll strive to do the best I can to make this up to you for the rest of our lives. Well, I want you to pretend for just a minute you're that kind of a person. You know, if you're in that situation, like I thought about this, Rebecca and I, I think we would strive to forgive each other, but I'm going to be honest, the trust in that relationship would utterly be destroyed, wouldn't it? It would just be destroyed. And, you know, if that person, you know, was faithful for 12 years, you know, it'd probably be getting a little better, but there'd still be looming questions in the mind. They did it for 24 years, you know, double. Or even three times the amount, right? They did it for, uh, what, 38, 38 years. Could we really say, you know, we never had any more questions or anything about that? You know, whenever human relationships happen and there is sin or there is betrayal and violation of trust, it's going to take what I call the long, hard road of repentance to repair that. It is long and it is a hard road. There's no shortcuts and there's no easy way through it. Well, in this particular offer here, in the offer of salvation and, and sin and the offense before the holiness of God and the brokenness of the relationship, I want you to look at what's being offered here. It is like immediate. God will take you now. You know, it's so funny to me when I talk to people who say, oh, I'm just going to clean my life up a little bit before I go to church, come to Christ. It makes no sense at all. In health terms, it's the equivalent of saying, yeah, as soon as this heart attack's over, I'm going to head over to the ER and see how I'm doing, right? You don't, you don't wait to become better in order to go see the doctor. You go while you're sick in the middle of the throes of it. In a similar fashion here, when your soul is sin sick and dead, don't wait. You go now. So it is, it is internal. It is eternal, right? Because Christ sat down, so that is eternal. Third thing here, and this is one of the things I love, he says here, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. What's it say, church? No more. The older I get and the busier I get, the more I forget things. If I've ever forgot anything from you, I'm very sorry, right? I just want to tell you right now, you come up to me and say, can you add so-and-so on the prayer list on Sunday morning? I had all the best intention in the world in doing that, but you got to remember there's probably 30 more people that said the same thing to me that morning, right? 
God here doesn't suddenly forget it, get amnesia and forget. But the God, remember, God is looking through you, looking at you through the completed work of Jesus Christ. He sees perfection now, not remembering your sin, not holding that sin against you anymore. When we think about this, verse 18 is so beautiful. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. You know, we had the Lord's Supper, what, three weeks ago? Something like that. You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not re-offering Christ. We are just celebrating what's already been offered. Does that make sense? Remember, Christ, after He offered Himself up, what did He do? He sat down. It was a completed work in action. No more need for offerings to be given for sin. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating the completed work of Christ and accepting that into our lives. So this morning, as we think through this passage and we give God praise for the fact that we have this unilateral forgiveness, it's from God to us, He will forgive and take us as we are, that we have an internal forgiveness, right? This is the key, isn't it? It is internal, not about externals, that it is eternal here, and it's really unconditional. It's not about doing X, Y, and Z. It's simply about taking the key, right? It's about having the right key. And what's the right key here to get the, the, the truck rolling? Well, the key is repentance and belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the key. That's what gets it all rolling and moving. Some of you are still loading boxes. Loading boxes on a box truck with the wrong key. Plan's not going to go the way you want it to go when the time comes and things need to move on. Well, you move on. So today... Will you trust Christ? You've been given everything you need here today in this passage to know Him for eternity. Not on your, not on your efforts. Not on what you can do. Not on the external offerings you can give. Not on your church attendance. Not on your Sunday school attendance. On the completed sacrifice of Christ who sits now at the right hand of the Father. Because it's done. My first church I went to there was a wise deacon there. I told him, I said, man, I just got so much to do. I was working two jobs. And I was um, I was pastoring a church, getting ready to get married. I said, man, I just got so much to do. He said, well, get used to that. And he said, at this point in your life, you got less to do. It's only going to get worse. He said, there's only one man that ever completed his work, and that was Jesus Christ. And I think he's right. You know, there'll be a day come where if I'm still here and y'all are still here, the Lord will come for me. And y'all bury me somewhere in the mountains of East Tennessee. And then we'll come back afterwards and eat potato salad and say, okay, what's next? Who's going to preach the gospel now? The work of the ministry has to go on. Right? You know, every teacher that retires next fall, guess what? Whole new batch of students that need to be taught. Every bricklayer out there completes another building. There's another building that needs to be completed still. The work's never finished. But praise be to God. Jesus Christ finished. His work for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you and we're so thankful for a text like this. It highlights the importance of not trusting in self, but trusting in you and your complete work alone. God, if there's anyone here that's far from you today who have thought they had the right key in their pocket, thought they were doing things, had a right understanding of sin, had a right understanding of your holiness and the need for forgiveness, but Lord, just had that wrong key in their pocket. God, I just pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would trust in your completed work alone, 
And as you sit at the right hand of the Father and we anticipate your return, Lord, help us to strive to be what we are. As we saw in the text today, we are a perfected people, not because of who we are and the decisions we make. We are perfected because of the completed work you have done. Thank you for this truth and these promises. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.